This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is brought to you by Book Riot Insiders, the digital bookish resource and hangout spot for readers. Enrich your reading life with our Book Riot Insiders perks. We've got three levels to Insiders, short story, novel, and the epic level. And you can try any level out for free for two weeks. For podcast lovers, meaning you, Insiders at the novel and epic level get access to two exclusive shows, the Read Harder podcast, which gives recommendations for the Read Harder challenge task by task, and Book Riot Remixed, where we randomly pair up hosts from across our shows to talk about... Well, whatever they want. Uh, I forget what my last one was, but Kim did beverages recently, and uh, I've done libraries, I think, at some point. Anyway, it's great. Insiders also get exclusive access to bookish deals, behind-the-scenes newsletters, our new release index, the Epic Book Club, and more, if you can believe it. Sign up for your free trial at insiders.bookriot.com. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Ugara. We're recording on Sunday, May 2nd. Hi, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I, I told you I or a little bit before, I sat in the sun for a lot of today. And so I've mm-hmm. been feeling a little loopy, but I I only trust that that will bring us podcast gold as opposed <laughs> to uh, nonsensical mutterings. Um, how about you? I did the same thing yesterday. It was something like 84 degrees in Minnesota, which is really unheard of for May. So my sister and I got out of our deck chairs and we just sat out on the patio all afternoon and it was... Yeah, I just like got done and I just felt like sleepy and kind of warm and happy because summer is coming. We're so close. It's so nice. I wore shorts today. I wore shorts yesterday. I have not worn shorts in a very long time. It was strange, but awesome. (laughs) Gotta let those legs breathe. Um, Do we (laughs) have any follow up? Uh, I don't think this is follow-up because I don't think I've talked about it before, but I did want to, it's nonfiction adjacent. I don't watch a lot of documentaries, but I decided in the last few weeks that I was going to watch The Last Dance, which is that Michael Jordan docu-series um, where they follow their night, the Bulls 1998 season where they're going for their sixth championship. Uh, and I finally finished that this week and it was awesome. I don't care about basketball at all. I like have never enjoyed watching it. I didn't really know anything about the Chicago Bulls or Michael Jordan, but it it was just a fascinating and really well done documentary series. It's 10 episodes talking about that season and then going back and giving sort of a overview of Jordan's career and the Bulls as they kind of built up during his career, all the things that happened to him. It was it was great. So if you're into I mean, even if you're not into basketball or documentaries, like I actually thought that one was pretty fascinating. So the Last Dance, it's on Netflix. I'm, it might be other places too, but that's where I watched it. Recommended. I used to play as the Chicago Bulls in NBA Jam on my Super Nintendo. <laughs> what is that? It was, it's a basketball game. <laughs> it was where I you have would, no idea. You would play uh, against, you know, other 
national basketball teams like the Phoenix Suns, which at the time had Charles Barkley on it. But most of my basketball player knowledge is restricted to the mid-90s when I was playing NBA Jam. Well, that would have been the Chicago Bulls of the docuseries, so you would at least know all of them. I didn't even really know any of them, so. Oh my gosh, quick side note to this other side note is (laughs) my wife got me, my birthday is not for a bit, but we're going to go on a road trip really soon. So she got me a Nintendo Switch uh, because I have been kind of wanting it for a number of months. And she got me, well, no, her sister got me Animal Crossing. And I was suddenly like reminded of you talking about it last year on the podcast and how much like you were excited about getting people to come to a concert. (laughs) Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I literally just started. So I'm like picking up weeds and sticks. Oh, gosh. Yeah, boy. (laughs) Animal Crossing was like the only thing I did outside of like my job (laughs) for most of April, May and June of 2020. And then at some point, I just stopped playing cold turkey because it was taking up too much of my time. And I have not picked it up since. Well, I'm glad that a full year later, I can just hop onto that trend. It's real fun and real soothing. Uh, I hope you love it. I, I really did love it while I was playing it. It was exactly what I needed at the time. But I'm excited. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. Nice. All right. So with that, uh, our first sponsor for this week's episode is Emporia State University's School of Library and Information Management. The Master's of Library Science program at Emporia State University is an ALA-accredited program that offers you the flexibility of online classes while also giving you a community of peers to build your professional network. Through a combination of instruction, students are able to form deep connections to the coursework, professors, other students, and practicing professionals in libraries. At ESU offers a quick and affordable way to earn your MLS, with most students completing their degree in just two years, even while working a full-time job. This program has been accredited since 1932, and it offers you a chance to build or expand your professional network with small class sizes. To learn more, visit their website at www.emporia.edu slash S-L-I-M. All right, so we'll kick off this episode as we normally do by talking about some nonfiction in the news. We got some two, I think, very different pieces of nonfiction news this week. The first one is that the 619 Project, which started out as a big uh, journalism project in the New York Times by Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, they're going to be coming out with some books for it. Um, so the project started in August of 2019 and offered a revealing new origin story for the United States, one that helped explain not only the persistence of anti-Black racism and inequality, but also the roots of so much of what makes the country unique. Uh, so there are going to be several books coming out as part of the project. Um, one is for adults, the 1619 Project, A New Origin Story. Then there's going to be a picture book called Born on the Water. So that is by Nicole Hannah-Jones and Renee Watson, and it's illustrated by Nicholas Smith. And that's a picture book in verse, uh, which looks, the cover anyway, looks beautiful. So that'll be a really cool addition. And then they're going to also have some other resources and contributors. So I can't tell when those are coming out. Do you remember, Alice? No, I just saw, so um, I follow Nicole Hannah-Jones on Twitter, and she posted really recently being like, pre-order my book. So um, I'm not sure exactly when it's coming out, but in order to, uh, if you want to like boost its standings and like have other people order it, you should pre-order it. Yes, Amazon says November 16th, 2021, it will be out. So I will link to that and then the book's website from Penguin Random House. But that's awesome. I think that's really cool. I'm glad that they're getting that into another format so more people will be able to see it. 
Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I I don't subscribe to anything except for local news, so I don't mm-hmm. get uh, the New York Times. But I would love to see this in book form. So, and it's right in time for the holiday season. Yeah, according to the, I'll just put the, the description on Amazon. It expands on the original project with 18 essays that explore the legacy of slavery in present day America, and also 36 poems and work of fiction that eliminate key moments. So that that sounds cool. Yeah, dang. Um, so yeah, kind of a pivot from that, as Kim <laughs> mentioned. Uh, the other bit of news is that Rachel Lindsay, who is the first Black Bachelorette on The Bachelorette, has a book coming out. It's going to be released uh, in January 25th, 2022. It's called Miss Me With That. She uh, announced it on her Instagram. I find out about everything on Instagram or it's Twitter. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but she recently, like they just did the 100th episode of her. She had a Bachelor podcast that she did with Becca Kufrin, who was another previous Bachelor contestant. And well, but no, she was a Bachelorette. And um they, uh, I forget the name of it. It was like Bachelor Happy Hour or something like that. But they did 100 episodes and she was like, I'm stepping back from the podcast because I think the subtext was that everything has been like pretty awful with the Bachelor franchise, like particularly blatantly, you know, as of late. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's the host's name? Uh, Chris, what's his face? Chris Harrison. <laughs> Chris Harrison, I should know this. I watched so many seasons. You should, yeah. Uh, I've already blotted him from my mind. So, <laughs> yeah, long time, like since season one, and they're on season, I don't even know, 20-something. Uh, long time host Chris Harrison stepped back because of his racist comments. Uh, or let's let's amend that and say host Chris Harrison uh, got in trouble because of his comments that were defending a concurrent contestant as of the last season. Um, she had, had basically had like a plantation themed right it was like an antebellum Mm -hmm. party at her sorority and he was saying that like well 2018 was like a really different time and (laughs) that's a ridiculous comment so um that i think kind of brought a lot more scrutiny um suddenly onto the show where i think that has been mounting for a number of years and rachel Lindsay, um i don't want to you know, obviously, like, put any words in her mouth, but my assumption would be that it would be exhausting to kind of be, well, to be the only Black Bachelorette and to be carrying all of that and to feel Mm -hmm. maybe like you have to be the person who is, like, being asked about this kind of thing all the time and, you know, just being so involved in that franchise. So um, I think it's fantastic if if she, like, for whatever reason she's doing this, that she's doing it. I'm really psyched about her book because we haven't had a good Bachelor book come out Maybe ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> we did that whole episode on them. Maybe that mm-hmm. behind the scenes one that you talked about. Mm-hmm. But in terms of books like by contestants, no, yeah. no. So I'm very psyched about this. So thank you, Rachel Lindsay, for coming out with a book. Uh, again, that is Miss Me With That. It's coming out January 25th. Yeah, that'll be a... Uh... That'll be interesting. I am I'm excited to hear about it from you because I am certain that you will read it and I probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds right. All right. So that's some uh, very different nonfiction news for this week. And now we will uh, shift gears into new nonfiction, which is books that are out now or coming out soon that we are excited about or have read and can recommend. So uh, Alice, you're up first for this one. Yeah, so my first pick is You Are Your Best Thing, Vulnerability, Shame, Resilience, and the Black Experience, edited by Tarana Burke and Brene Brown. So Tarana Burke and 
Brene Brown. So Toronto Burke was the founder of the hashtag Me Too movement. Brene Brown, you know, has written all these books about uh, vulnerability. And they were like basically chatting one day and decided that this would be a uh, an important project to work on together. So in this, they bring together 19 contributors who are, well, 19 essays of Black writers, organizers, artists, academics, cultural figures to discuss the topics that both um, Burke and Brown have spent their whole lives trying, like, working on and towards, and that's vulnerability and shame resilience. So, I mean, gosh, just, like, (laughs) the fact that – I'm just really excited about this book. I'm sorry. Um, I don't know how to sort of concisely state that, but it's very exciting. So this includes uh, contributions by Kiesi Lehman, Imani Perry, Laverne Cox, Jason Reynolds, Austin Channing Brown, and about, let's, let's say, like 15 more. So this, I was looking at some of the essays, and they include like This Joy I Have by Austin Channing Brown, um, Never Too Much by Mark Lamont Hill, Running Out of Gas by Sonia Renee Taylor, Black Surrender Within the Ivory Tower by Jessica J. Williams. It is out now. So you should order it, reserve it at your library, (laughs) do one of those things. Um, This is such an exciting partnership. And I just like, I love the idea of these two extremely like powerful women who are doing such good work being like, let's collaborate on something. And then not only like them collaborating, but then them bringing in all of these other like powerful voices to this book. So again, that is You Are Your Best Thing, Vulnerability, Shame Resilience, and the Black Experience, uh, edited by Tarana Burke and Brene Brown. Yeah, that sounds really incredible because... Like, I love Brene Brown's books, but I can see, like, wanting to bring in other perspectives and more intersectionality to some of those themes and, like, what they mean for people who are not white women like Brene Brown, even though, like, her research isn't exclusively about that. Like, it it can lead that way just by the virtue of who she is. And so I think it's fascinating to try and bring more voices to those ideas and how they're particular and different for people with different backgrounds. So that's a really – that's a very cool book. I'm excited that it exists. Yeah. Uh, So my first pick is uh, a departure from that. (laughs) It is called Why Peacocks? An (laughs) Unlikely Search. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just just the pivot. Okay, go ahead. All right. Uh, It is called Why Peacocks? An Unlikely Search for Meaning in the World's Most Magnificent Bird by Sean Flynn, which comes out May 11th from Simon & Schuster. And in the book, uh, Sean Flynn, who is a journalist, seeks to understand the mysterious allure of peacocks and in the process discovers unexpected and valuable life lessons. Uh, That's a quote from the book jacket because it made me laugh. So uh, the book opens with Flynn and his family living on this, like, kind of rurally property but like they still have neighbors and stuff and they get a text from one of their neighbors asking if they would like to uh, buy a peacock from them Uh, and they go to this neighbor's house and like learn about it and the neighbor's like yeah you know for these reasons i'm trying to like get rid of my peacocks i'll sell you some of them for like two hundred dollars and his wife is like uh maybe one but like we don't need a bunch of them and uh sean like contacts the neighbor again and is like yeah yeah it's fine we'll take a couple uh goes over there and they get three peacocks that they're gonna bring home to their house and raise so they bring home the peacocks and with their two little sons decide that they're going to name them Carl, Ethel, and Mr. Pickle because <laughs> the like tail on the biggest one, the kid says it looks like a pickle. So that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so they bring these peacocks home and they like build a shelter for them. And then they realize they like have no idea how to raise peacocks at all. So the book is a memoir kind of chronicling their first year as owners of these birds or peafowl because peacocks are the male birds, but they, they threw 
peafowl. Um, and so it's also a history of the birds and what they have meant to people around the world through history and then kind of today as well. So because he's a magazine journalist, after they kind of realize we have no idea what we're doing, he embarks on this research project to really understand um, how to own these birds. And so they go to a Scottish castle where peacocks have resided for centuries, a Southern California community tormented by a serial killer of peacocks, and a Kansas City airport hotel hosting an annual gathering of true peafowl aficionados. That's another book jacket quote that also made me laugh. So yeah, it's just, it's not a straight, like, history of peacocks kind of book. It's very much a memoir about his experience as a bird owner um, and about, like, how owning the birds was helpful for him and his family. Um, part of his job writing for magazines is he often writes about very dark subjects, and so he's really frank about kind of the impact that has on him and his kids and his wife um, and what the, like, having the birds kind of did for them as, like, therapy animals kind of. And just... A little bit about his work and stuff, too. And, like, so he brings his journalism background into telling this story. And I just, I have thought it is very charming. I didn't really, like, I love books about just, like, weird things. And so a book all about peacocks just struck me as very kind of strange and interesting. But it's very funny. Um, The family is really fun to spend time with. And I am excited to learn more about the birds. So that is Why Peacocks, An Unlikely Search for Meaning in the World's Most Magnificent Bird by Sean Flynn. Did it remind you at all of Mr. Popper's penguins? You know, it didn't until you said that. And now, yes, it does. <laughs> that is a book that I think you have to have read as a child when it all it's seems so great. like a perfectly feasible proposition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Such a good book. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Oh my now gosh. it does I, for sure. I was also thinking about 30 Rock and how Jack inherits a peacock named Argus. Um <laughs> From his boss. Anyway. Okay. So my next pick is, I think I talked about this at the beginning of the year as a book I was psyched about. I don't remember, though. It was so long ago. Um, This is African Europeans, an untold history by Olivette Otele. This is so cool. (laughs) It's because if you are trying to read, basically, if you tried to find this kind of book recently, it was basically impossible. I think there's one because I no, there are a couple, but especially in terms of books by black ap- academics, because uh, Miranda Kaufman has written some books about, uh, or at least one about the black tutors. But yeah, this kind of thing just didn't exist. So the fact that this kind of thing is being published now is awesome. Uh, this starts uh, around the third century, so like 200 CE, uh, talking about St. Maurice who was the le- leader of a Roman Theban le- legion. I was going to say legend. I was going to say Roman Theban legion. It's a fun thing. But uh, there have always been these sort of encounters between um, people who were, you know, defined as, because what is nationality? Uh, Africans, and those called Europeans. But then, so, so uh, Olivetto Tele goes back through the centuries, uh, focusing on Europe and then Africans living in Europe. Um, She looks at the perceptions of Black populations in European countries and how much African Europeans have really been accepted within those societies because, you know, it it just has varied from nation to nation. She also looks at how racism has manifested itself 
and how prejudice and oppression can have these like generational effects, which uh, I think we tend to is because, you know, especially if you live in America, you tend to only think of that as like, you know, American history and the enslavement of black uh, people. And that kind of being the main manifestation of this, but it's like, no, this goes back centuries. This happened in Europe. Um, there, it, there were definitely times when, um, again, it was like much better for black people in European countries, especially than here, but here being America. But it's just really fascinating to go into and see how these relationships have played out and how how in some in some cases, right, like black Europeans were able to thrive and then other times not. So this goes um, from, again, like looking back to like the 200s to uh, the Renaissance and then looking at kind of like present day uh, migrants who are moving to Europe's cities from Africa. So if you want kind of an expansive look, but also uh, a look at something that, again, has not really been addressed in depth, especially not at this level before. That is African Europeans and Untold History by Olivette Otele. That one sounds awesome. Yeah. Now, after you started talking about it, I remembered, I think you did talk about it in books you were excited for. And yeah, it sounds fascinating, like especially in the context of like having to constantly have discussions around like, oh, people of color didn't exist in Europe. And so we can't put them in historical fiction and all of those kinds of things, which like, you can just put them there anyway, it's fiction. But like they actually were there also. Um, I think that like having some nonfiction backing of some of those arguments sounds fascinating and just to like be able to to dig deeper into that idea. What is that book about uh Alexandre Dumas grandfathers of the Black Count? Yes, I wrote that down while you were talking as I was like, <laughs> that's an example of another one like that. Yes, the Black Count, which is a it's a really good one. But not similar, yeah, in what it does. Yeah. But yeah, this is that's obviously a specific biography, and this is a, mm-hmm. a kind of like a sweeping uh, history. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm just really excited that it's uh, been published finally. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so my next pick uh, is uh, another departure, I guess. Uh, it's called Turning Point, How a New Generation of Dancers is Saving Ballet from Itself by Chloe Angel, uh, coming out May 4th from Bold Type Books. And this is a book that is looking at ballet and uh, the past and present of ballet and how gender, racial, and class inequities are affecting the future of it. But So the whole point of the book is really to look at how ballet has historically existed and how some of the ways that like ballet classes and uh, ballet history and the famous ballets, how all of those things are starting to threaten the future of it and how it's may become kind of a lost art or one that people can't pursue because it's not keeping up with changes in the times. So the author is a former dancer. She wasn't uh, like ever a professional ballet dancer, but she did take ballet classes and dance classes as a kid. And so she brings kind of that experience and then her experience as a journalist into trying to understand what's going on. Um, and she's very clear in the beginning that this isn't like an expose about ballet, nor is it like a really comprehensive history. Like it's more sort of a state of ballet today and looking at how things that have happened in the past may affect ballet's ability to be an important art form in the future. So she starts with like ballet classes and looks at how the structure of those classes and the ways that boys and girls are treated in those classes enforces certain types of gender roles, both about like how boys and girls are valued differently, what they're valued for, how traditional ballet forces boys and girls to dance differently and doesn't allow boys and girls who dance differently than the gender is expected to, to really thrive in ballet classes. 
And so it just kind of goes into that and then a bunch of different detail and a bunch of different ways about how this is a an art form that is performed mostly by women but dominated by men in many of the like the leadership roles and then the standards of beauty that ballet dancers are expected to meet to and then the racism that keeps many people of color out of ballet and then she also looks at how dancers are pushing back against these things to try and reform the industries in different ways and it's super interesting because she opens talking about how the pandemic has really like forced ballet like many other arts industries to kind of reset itself um both by like not having studios or performances or anything open but then also like it was kind of at a turning point anyway and so she's looking at what that turning point could be and what ballet could look like if it can move away from some of these kind of more antiquated ideas about who can participate and how they can participate and I um it's fascinating like I have never been a dancer but I like understanding how things work and where they go and so this one just really kind of looks at ballet comprehensively i think to say how can we have this art form exist into the future but also be more inclusive and welcoming and less stuck in gender binaries and it's it's really great i i'm finding it really fascinating so that is turning point how a new generation of dancers is saving ballet from itself by chloe angel well and it's like with these art forms you know like ballet and opera if you don't do something different with them people are like they're gonna die because mm-hmm. people are just not interested in them overall anymore like their their audiences are predominantly aging mm-hmm. and that's not great for you know keeping something thriving uh, I, it was interesting when you were talking about all the, these forms having to adapt for the pandemic um the lyric opera in chicago is doing uh one of wagner's operas i don't remember which but in a parking garage and it's like oh, this experience yeah. where you like drive through and you have like, I think it's like nine cars at a time. And I was mm-hmm. just thinking about like, what are the car fumes doing to the singers? But <laughs> uh, it was fine. Um, but yeah, just like they're doing new things where I, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's like if I had a car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would totally do that. But absolutely, like it getting different representation, changing how things are just sort of like always been done, mm-hmm. which, you know, when I was... I feel so old being like when I was growing up, but like even in the 90s, it was kind of like we're setting this opera in the Old West instead of like 15th century Florence. (laughs) And it was like, oh, my goodness, like that was like the big change. Yeah. So, yeah, like really just looking at like how we can make these like sort of revive them and make Mm -hmm. them like look at them from a different perspective and include people who um, have traditionally been kept out for stupid reasons. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, one of the cool examples in the book that I'm not going to remember the specifics because my brain is just like melty today, but so there's this famous ballet where at the end, the woman essentially sacrifices herself for this man who previously in the ballet had rejected her and not uh, not supported her. And uh, a recent revival of it, choreographed by a person of color, a woman of color, change the ending so that the woman decides not to sacrifice herself for this man and instead like moves on her own way and that that was a real revolution and so just stuff like that of like rethinking the way things have been done it's there's fascinating examples in the book that i i'm i like i like reading about well it's it's even okay just not to go on about this forever but this is really fascinating but like it's even like with shakespeare when you look at something like taming of the shrew Mm -hmm. which people still want to do but it's like you have to somehow account for the ending yeah. Which is, uh, if you just read it literally, like, horrifying. So, um, I mean, I've seen some restagings of it, which I think have done it really well. But it's just, yeah, you've got to you gotta do stuff like that. Yeah. 
Um, and then I have two real quick mentions that I want to throw out there as other books that are out now or soon that I think are definitely going to be interesting. Um, the first one is There's a Revolution Outside My Love, Letters from a Crisis, which is a collection edited by Tracy K. Smith and John Freeman. Uh, and so this is basically a collection of letters and essays, poems, and reflections by a whole host of Black writers set in kind of the world of the pandemic. So responding to the pandemic and the ways that it has affected people in particularly the Black community to give voice to the unthinkable grief and hopeful possibilities born in an era of revolution and change. Um, so I this one is out, uh, I think, May 11th. Um, I wasn't able to get a galley of it, but it looks fascinating. So that's one. And then the second one is uh, The Premonition, a pandemic story by Michael Lewis, which is Michael Lewis trying to take on the COVID pandemic. So he is looking at the work of medical visionaries who end their way that they're pushing against the wall of ignorance that was the official response of the Trump administration to the outbreak of COVID-19. Um, and I wanted to mention this one because I do not think I am ready to read this. But I'm fascinated that it is out or will be out by the time you listen to this podcast because it seems so early to be doing a book trying to understand COVID-19, but maybe the way he's approaching it's not. And I'm sure that we're going to see a ton of stuff about it when it comes out. Sounds like the premonition is a little <laughs> premature. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That is excellent. So anyway, that'll be out. I'm sure we'll hear more about it, but I wanted to just mention it as a new book, even though I probably will not be reading it. No, it's too early. We can't, we can't do breakdowns of the last presidential administration yet. And we can't do, maybe they can start writing them now. And we can't do pandemic books yet. It's too early. Too soon. I mean, people can do what they want, but... <laughs> I will not read them. Um, okay. Second sponsor for the episode is Harper Perennial, publisher of Goodbye Again by Johnny Sun. Johnny Sun, the wonderfully original author of Everyone's an Aliabin When You're an Aliabin Too. Yes, that is correct. That is the title. Is back with a collection of essays and other writings in his unique, funny, and heartfelt style. With pieces that range from long meditations on topics like loneliness and being an outsider to short humor pieces, conversations, and memorable one-liners, Johnny's honest writing about his struggles with feeling productive as well as his difficulties with anxiety and depression will connect deeply with his fans as well as anyone attempting to create in our chaotic world. Uh, it also features a recipe for scrambled eggs that might make you cry. If you really like illustrated books, which I think we all do, we all have a bit of guest on in us, I think. <laughs> and uh, again, covering topics like mental health, uh, happiness, what it means to belong, you should check this out. Uh, it has been blurbed by Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda and Patton Oswalt, which I read all of Patton Oswalt's books and I like them very much. It has been called by Library Journal a poetic, humorous, and heartfelt collection that will have readers engrossed and craving more. So again, that is Goodbye Again by Johnny Sun, and thank you Harper Perennial for sponsoring. That sounds real fun and good. I think we can all use more of that right now. So, excellent. I looked at everyone's an alien when you're an alien too, and it is the illustrated story of a lonely alien sent to observe Earth and uh he calls himself an alien. Oh, adorable. I know. 
All right. Uh, so for this week's theme, we decided to go with something uh, a little lighter, potentially, um, and talk about some of our favorite young adult memoirs. So this is YA nonfiction in memoir format, books that we have read or, or want to read or recommend. So uh, my first one is All Boys Aren't Blue, a memoir manifesto by George M. Johnson, which is a book that came out in 2020 from FSG. Uh, and its age range is about 14 to 18 years old. Um, and there are some content warnings for the book covering some pretty heavy topics, gender identity, toxic masculinity, brotherhood, family, structural marginalization, consent, and black joy. So some content warnings and a little, I think, probably on the upper end of YA books for this one. But um, I also wanted to say before I get talking about it too much that George M. Johnson uses they, them pronouns now, but in the book and at the time it was written, uh, he uses he, him in the book bio. So I'm going to try to get that right. But if I mess it up, I apologize because the book and current pronouns are different. And in my brain, as I said, is a little melty. All Boys Aren't Blue is a collection of personal essays from a journalist and LGBTQIA plus activist. Uh, the book looks at their childhood, their adolescence growing up in New Jersey, and then their college years attending a historically black college in Virginia. Um, and it is just about kind of everything. And each chapter is written kind of as an essay. And I love that they um, kind of each take a little bit different format. Some are in the format of letters. Some are just kind of straight. Here's a story about when I first, when I was five years old and I got my teeth kicked out by bullies. There's one that's a really lovely dedication to their grandmother. Um, there's some about first sexual relationships and all sorts of different kinds of things like that. But the book is really like what ties it all together is it's a book about celebrating black queer boys um, as a way to show them that they are not alone. And then also to explore how those two identities being black and being queer can be especially complicated when paired together for lots and lots of different reasons. So there's a lot in the book trying to explain intersectionality and some of those things also in ways that are like accessible to teen readers. So so in addition to being like for black queer boys and celebrating their identities, it's also for teens who want to be allies and understand how to do that better. Like I said, it has kind of some heavy topics in there. Um, you know, there's stuff about bullying, but then there's also these really charming and lovely parts of it. There's a chapter about um, uh, George went by Matthew as a kid how at recess they used to love to double dutch and then how that shifted because boys play sports and so they got pulled into playing sports and then found out they were actually super good at sports and so how like all of those different like complicated identities oh and them being good at sport helped them connect with their dad and so how those kind of what they wanted to do and what they were good at and how being good at was kind of the thing that was expected and how all of that kind of tied together. And it's just really smart and, and interesting. And the other reason I was excited about this one is I found an article that Gabrielle Union is actually making it into a safe TV series with Tony Television, which I think is also really awesome. Like the way that it's written, I think it'll make a really great TV show because I think each of the chapters would make a really interesting episode kind of exploring a different idea. So I really like this one. It's great. All Boys Aren't Blue, a memoir manifesto by George M. Johnson. Oh my gosh, that sounded so good. It's real good. Uh, I've seen that cover a bunch. Oh, the cover is beautiful. There's a, we have a, our, the indie closest to us has like a really big LGBTQ section. And I think I've especially seen it there, but I've just never like looked at it because I spend all my time in the nonfiction, like just sales section. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, oh gosh, it's going on my list, Kim. Good pick. Nice. 
Um, my first pick, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I'm just really jazzed about it and it fit the theme. So we're going to look at it again. It is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. This is Jacqueline Woodson's uh, childhood memoir that uh, is in verse. That's right. You say mm-hmm. that? Because, it, yeah. I get a little confused with verse and prose sometimes. So this it's basically taking small episodes, meaning like almost like glimpses into Woodson's life uh, as a child growing up in both South Carolina and New York and um, putting them in these like beautiful poems. And I'm not a poetry person. And I say that meaning like I think everyone is in some ways a poetry person, right? Like poetry just sometimes is able to say things that you cannot just say with like straight up prose. But overall, I don't seek out poetry. It's not like a thing that I tend to super enjoy. But I really loved this book. Talking about it makes me want to read it again, which I feel like is always right, like the mark of something really good. And um, it was the first book by Woodson that I read, which is also, I feel like a kind of like a thing because uh, her writing is so good. But she uh, shares what it's like growing up as a, a an African-American in the 1960s and 70s, um, her relationship with her mom, who was like, she was left with her family. Her mom went up to New York to work. So that's her life in South Carolina. And then transitioning to New York and how different that was. Then, you know, you have all this like space and freedom, you know, like growing up in the country and then moving into the city and just what that was like at the same time as, you know, living with these sort of like Jim Crow was still uh, in effect and but the civil rights movement was happening. So it was just this this time full of a lot of change and then told through her life as like from her childhood perspective. But again, with these poems. So I just like, oh, I cannot rec- like recommend this enough. Um, that is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. Every time you talk about that book, I'm always like, oh, man, I should like get that from the library and I should read it right now. And then I never do, and it always sounds awesome. And it's a quick read. I don't know what's wrong with me. I gotta get, I gotta get reading, read more <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Excellent pick. Um, all right. So my second pick for this one is called Girl Code: Gaming, Going Viral, and Getting It Done by Andrea Gonzalez and Sophie Hauser, which is a book that came out in 2017 from HarperCollins. And according to the book, the like target age is sort of 13 to 17, so it's a little bit younger. And it is the story of two teenagers who meet at a Girls Who Code summer camp. They end up teamed up for their final project, and they create this viral video game that then lets them like get into the tech industry as teenage girls. And it's about them uh, like coming to understand themselves as coders, like why they wanted to do it, and then what happened to them after their video game went viral, where they got to actually like get into the tech industry and all the things that they kind of learned there. So uh, the game they invented for their final project was called Tampon Run. And the reason that they invented it was because they wanted to make a statement about how women and girls are shamed for having their periods. And so the game is one of those little like side uh, side um, scrolling like shooter games where the there's a girl and she throws tampons at police who are coming to try and get her and like that's the whole game is just doing that but the idea was to talk about menstruation and why it's such a taboo topic um, and so they do the game and it goes viral and people get really excited about it and so then they get this chance to connect with tech industry experts and other women in tech and other areas of coding and really like follow that passion and so um 
the memoir kind of jumps back and forth between their perspectives. So you get these real, like, you know, they're, they're college students now, but you, so you get this really charming kind of perspective on like, this is what was happening to me. And this is what I thought of my friend. And this is the other girl, what her impressions of it and the things they were insecure about. And they're very, um, they're, I guess, candid just in sort of the like anxieties they had and what they were nervous about and the things that they're learning and the mistakes that they made and some of the challenges they had. And so I feel like this would be a really great book for girls who are interested in computers or think they might be interested in computers to just sort of see how other girls experienced that and what they learned and what their lives were like while they were kind of getting into the industry. Um, and then there's some cool stuff at the end about like the basics of coding so that if you're curious about it, you can kind of try one of their little exercises and see if it's something that makes sense for you. So I thought this was really charming. They're both like very clear writers and just like both have very distinctive voices, which I think is important too for a memoir that's going to jump back and forth between their different perspectives. So I like this one too. Girl Code, Gaming, Going Viral, and Getting It Done by Andrea Gonzalez and Sophie Hauser. I feel like that's extra cool because there have been so many books uh, recently by you know, sort of like empowered women executives being like, here's why girls need to code and like mm-hmm. all this stuff. So we're actually hearing from this like generation that is now like actually learning how to code and like what their experience has been and what they've done with it. Like mm-hmm. that is super cool. And I think, you know, motivating definitely in its own way of being able to actually see like, oh, this is the path someone took who yeah. is like me and, you know, has done these things. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. My last pick is Obsessed, a memoir of my life with OCD by Allison Britz. This memoir is really interesting because it's written in a way that is like novel-like, which norm like is present tense in terms of like you're with mm-hmm. Brits as she is living the story, which she tells from the perspective of um when she was 15 in her sophomore year of high school, which is when her OCD set in. She had a nightmare that she was diagnosed with brain cancer and she woke up and she was like, Oh, this was like my body telling me that this is gonna happen. And so I need to do something to make sure that I don't get brain cancer and so um she starts out like she avoids like cracks in the sidewalk and then she and she talks about it's like a very visceral reaction that her body has to like certain things like she's like blow drying her hair she was like going for the blow dryer and her body was like that's like dangerous like you can't touch it and she was like okay okay like it was very you know like this message that she was getting and then having to like deal with and so normally i think nonfiction written in a way that is like a novel can bother me just because I'm all about, you know, like, what actually happened? And do you have facts about that? Or do you have like, any kind of reference from that time that you were pulling from? And in this case, I think the point is to make you um, to kind of live that experience in a way, like as much as you can, right, reading it along with her, and what it was like, suddenly having these these symptoms that grow and grow. And um, like, she starts, she, um, has to avoid like calculators and cell phones and computers and like anything green and stuff. And so it's especially fascinating, I think, because the pop culture or whatever demonstration of OCD that I think is portrayed is like, oh, you have to wash your hands a certain number of times or, you mm-hmm. know, like that kind of where it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, that's like a little like, oh, sure, like that thing. And it's it's so much more. And I mean, it's also like anything like this. There's a there's a wide spectrum of, of how it shows up. And this is um, her particular thing. So she talks about how she works with her doctor to mitigate her obsessions and her behavior. And 
basically there's like an ending note that offers hope from Brits and then also has a list of resources um, for anyone who uh, is is also working through like uh, OCD. So I was just like, I just thought it was really different and really interesting. And I thought a really, I don't know if, if the word is neat. I want to be like a neat way of like displaying this, but it's, it is a very serious subject. But I think that uh, let's say unique way of of showing what she went through and telling her story. So again, that is Obsessed, a memoir of my life with OCD by Allison Britz. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that like the sort of novel-like treatment of nonfiction can be poorly deployed, but also can be really expert, like well-deployed. And this feels like a situation where it was well-deployed because something about like trying to get inside someone's head because you can describe what you did and what you felt, but it's a lot more visceral if you can sort of be help the reader be in that moment and really have more empathy for you because they're kind of in there with you in the same yeah. way. So I think that this is a that's a a smart way of using that technique that wouldn't always work, but sounds like it does for this, and that sounds fascinating. So great pick, great pick. All right, so those were uh, a few YA memoirs that we have read and enjoyed. There are many, many more, so I'm sure we'll be revisiting this topic in the future, but hopefully a couple there that might be interesting for you. Uh, So with that, we will wrap up this week's episode as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. Um, And I am not reading this book yet, but it just came for me from the library and I've been on the hold list for, it feels like a real long time, so I'm jazzed about it. And it's called A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears by Matthew Hogsnelts Helting. Uh, And this is a book about how a group of libertarians hatched this project called the Freetown Project, and they tried to take over an American town and eliminate the government. So in 2004, they decided they were going to take over Grafton, New Hampshire, which is this very unpopulated area without a road. So then they go to Grafton, they eliminate public funding for basically everything. They start... start ignoring all sorts of laws and then things go awry and bears uh, start to take over the town because there are no (laughs) rules or anything (laughs) preventing that that would stop uh, habits and behaviors that encourage bears to come. Um, So I just, um, something about this one has just like made me laugh every time I have seen the title. I like that pun in there. um, And I think it's going to be Local, I love local government stuff, so I'm really interested in this one. So, A Libertarian Walks into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears by Matthew Hongsoltz-Helding. Oh, man. That sounds really good. <laughs> and reminded me of the Pawnee raccoon infestation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Correct. Fantastic. Um, I am currently reading Ninth House by Lee Bardugo, which I wanted to mention because I know that you've read it. I did. Yes, it is. Um, it was very intense. It's very intense. It is. I'm halfway through. I really love it, and I feel like the not the nonfiction element because there's a lot of fiction, right? It's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff with magic. Oh, oh, or is it fiction? Anyway, so Lee Bardugo clearly did a lot of research, yeah, and learned a lot about Yale and its history. And I, being again the nonfiction nerd that I am, whenever there's like kind of like a fact referenced like in passing i'm like stop reading and i look it up <laughs> and be like oh what is well, who is this person what are they talking about here what does this building look like and it's i would say it's been a a real add-on uh to the experience of reading the book so but it's it's great i really liked it and with that 
You can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you feel so inclined, we would love it if you would take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps people find us more easily. And then you can follow so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, So with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.